News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's cast your mind back to the darkest days of the pandemic when governments were trying to do everything they could to help businesses. There was a time then when Ottawa lent out something like $49 billion. That was emergency loans that the government extended to small businesses during the pandemic lockdowns. That is according to government numbers. But of course, those were loans. Those were not gifts. And so now there is this job of chasing down business owners to collect on that mountain of debt that was issued. Is that likely to happen, though? Is that even possible to try to collect on some of that money? Well, joining us now is Corinne Pullman, who's the Senior VP of National Affairs at the CFIB. Corinne, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So how does the Canadian Federation of Independent Business see this then? Is this realistic to think that the government's going to collect on these loans? Well, I think, you know, most small businesses are going to do everything they can to repay those loans. Um, they were certainly given out at a time when it was desperately needed. Um, there is a caveat on the loan that you have until the end of 2023 to pay it back in order to get a portion of it um, reimbursed to you, basically. Um, that's a forgivable portion of the loan. So given that many small businesses have really struggled to get back on their feet since the pandemic sort of, uh, I wouldn't say ended, I mean, they're still, it's still very much with us in many respects, but since sort of things became more back to normal, uh, many of them are still not back to pre-pandemic levels, and they're still carrying a mountain of debt, much more than just that one loan. So they're probably sort of figuring out the best way to start paying back everything they owe in a way that they can do it. So they have until the end of next year, actually, to pay back that portion in order to get a forgivable portion of the loan. So I know we've talked about the economy and how it's going, but you raise an interesting point. That is, are small businesses even capable of paying this back at this point? That's a great question. I think there are certainly some that could. Um, Our latest data shows that about 10% have been able to pay back all their COVID-related debt. And 40% have yet to pay anything back because they're just not able to get back to to where they were. Remember, right, coming out of the pandemic, they had to rehire people. And it's not exactly easy to find folks right now. So if you don't have the people, you can't necessarily open your store or your restaurant or get the production line going to the same degrees you maybe had pre-pandemic. And you're facing much higher costs because of inflationary pressures, increased taxes and that kind of thing. So it's a real struggle for many small businesses at the moment. Would it be more helpful if the government perhaps eased the repayment rules? I mean, 2023 seems like a pretty fast loan repayment. Yeah, in fact, it was supposed to be the end of this year when it was first introduced back in 2020. The government did extend it till the end of 23. But we're suggesting, given the numbers that we're looking at, um, all the inflationary pressures we're dealing with, the uncertainty about the economy, that perhaps we need to push it back one more year, at least to 2024, giving them a bit more breathing room to sort of get their uh, ducks in a row so that they can pay it back. But we also have to keep in mind there's going to be businesses that are going to unfortunately go under um, as a result of all this heavy debt. So that's the part that may be a bit more obviously challenging for the business to recover. Yeah, are you hearing about that from independent businesses? Are, Are they still kind of struggling to make a go of it? Yeah, certainly. I'd say about one in six are telling us that they're actually um, seriously considering closing their doors. So it is definitely something that continues to be a concern for a proportion of businesses. Yeah. All right. So then where where do you go with this now, Corinne? Is this something that you continue to lobby the government over? 
Yes, absolutely. We continue to sort of remind the government that uh, debt is still a very big problem. The average debt load right now for small businesses is around $158,000, and that's just COVID-related debt, and it continues to be around that number. It's going down slightly over the last six, eight months, but still very significant for a small business. So our job is to remind government that that's still the case for them. And so we continue to aggressively push them to push back the deadline for which they have to pay back these loans, give them another year of breathing space, two, to think about actually um, maybe even giving a bigger forgivable portion, given so much debt has been accumulated through most of it through no fault of their own. Um, And so we continue to remind government that it's not over for many small businesses, though it may be for other types of businesses. Right. Corinne, thank you so much for your time on this. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. The ceremonial procession in London is now underway as Queen Elizabeth II's coffin has left Buckingham Palace for the last time and is moved towards Westminster Hall at Parliament. Our Ben O'Hara Byrne is there, the host of A Little More Conversation in London right now, watching these events unfold. And he joins us this morning. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, Simi. Tell me, where are you? What is happening? So I'm, I'm on the mall, the mall, really, where, where the procession has just gone past. So there were tens of thousands of people here to watch this, as has been the case for um, many events across uh, the Great Britain, including in Scotland. And last night when the coffin came back from, uh, from Scotland uh, to Buckingham Palace. Uh, so there were tens of thousands of people here to watch this procession. It has gone past. It is now on its way to Westminster Hall. So it's, uh, it's made about half of the journey. And, of course, we saw the, the coffin being carried uh, the gun carriage by horse, horse-drawn gun carriage, as well as uh, the king, the three other siblings, Princess Anne, uh, Prince Andrew and Prince Edward, as well as the sons, uh, the king's sons, so Prince um, William and Prince Harry behind them. So, you know, I mean, the idea that people have just wanted to catch a glimpse. So everywhere you go, I'm, I'm in a sea of humanity right now, as people are now leaving, trying to catch up to the uh, procession as it makes its way towards the Houses of Parliament about a 10-minute walk from here. Now, Ben, I understand as well that there's a lot of concern that perhaps London isn't prepared for just how many people want to be a part of this. Yeah, I mean, London knows how to handle big events, whether it's Jubilee, the Platinum Jubilee, the Diamond Jubilee, the Olympics. You know, they they have the infrastructure in place to do it. But you're right, this is going to be something on a scale that we may have never seen before. Uh, But so far, I mean, listen, there, there is very little room to move in central London, and that is always an issue. Uh, so people may be disappointed. Obviously, a lot of people can't get good vantage points to see some of these processions and so on. And the, um, the lineup just to see the Queen, to pay one's final respects, as she lies in state, was already long. I was there this morning, and people have been waiting overnight. Some have been there since dawn. Uh, they expect about 200, you know, as many as 750,000, I think, at one point was the number out. I think that's probably too high. But there is just such an interest in seeing what's unfolding here, um, that the crowds are, are going to be numerous. But there are police everywhere. There is crowd control everywhere. Uh, they've done a fine job so far. As I mentioned, you know, London is one of those cities that knows how to handle big events right. and has done so in the past. Yeah. What is the mood like then? I would imagine it's quite quiet. Well, it's, it's odd because I was just talking to someone about how different the mood was compared to Diana's funeral. Uh, they were saying, you know, at that point, there was so much grief and wailing. You know, I think there was some shock at the outset last week when the Queen passed away and everyone reacted to that. But since then, my the overriding emotion I've heard is just one of wanting to share memories. It's kind of a, in some ways, to celebrate both 
her life as, as, as a monarch, but also her life as a woman. It was very obviously important within British society. It's sort of the blanket of the nation in some ways, uh, and just people's personal memories. So there's not a lot of sadness. There have been a few tears, but mostly the mood seems to be one of wanting to celebrate um, a life well lived and a, and, a, and a reign, you know, a country well served. Oh, that is so interesting. All right. So, Ben, what is next for you then? What's going to happen over the next few days? So we're going to, the lying in state begins. Uh, the people I was speaking to in line, they all have their wristbands now. So they're amongst the first two who will be able to enter Westminster Hall. It's expected that that will really take up the, the, the next few days. It will be just the sheer number of people wanting to pay their final respects. Uh, and then, of course, preparation for the funeral, because there'll be heads of state coming over, coming in from all around the world to, to, to attend Monday's funeral. Just the logistics around that, the security around that, I think there's going to be a lot of, uh, a lot of attention paid paid to that over the coming days. And of course, we'll see some really uh, poignant moments, I think, during the lying in state. We know there's supposed to be the vigil of the princes when you may see members of the royal family themselves, as we did in Edinburgh, um, standing vigil over the Queen's coffin at Westminster Hall. So lots of things to look forward to, to, uh, lots of things obviously to pay attention to. But mostly at this point, I think a lot of it's building up uh, to the funeral on Monday. All right, well, we look forward to talking to you again about this. Ben, thank you so much for that. Always a pleasure, Simi. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. So if you're unhappy with the way the government is, does that make you more likely to vote in the next election? I don't know. It's so hard to tell with these things. Historically, municipal elections have a lower voter turnout than provincial or federal elections. But it seems, I don't know, different this time. It's about a month to go before we have our municipal elections here in B.C. And what we do know is that there is some discontent among Vancouver and Surrey voters. To talk more about that, we're joined by Steve Mossip from Leger, who's been doing some polling on this. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Simi. Okay, so what were you looking into? Well, it's our first read of the municipal elections upcoming in the next month. And uh, we did look at voter sentiment, the things that people are concerned about. And you're right, one of the things that jumped off the page of me is that 56% of Metro Vancouver residents are looking for a change. And that's, uh, that's a little bit higher than what we normally poll. Okay. So what would you say is the normal range for that? Normal range? Well, municipal politics, as you, as you pointed out, has a very low turnout. You know, 36% is around the average. In a good year, it might hit 40 or 42. Uh, this time around, we see that 83% of Metro Vancouver residents say that they're very or somewhat likely to vote. That breaks down to about 58% who say they're very likely to vote. So maybe this time around, we'll see a somewhat higher turnout uh, than what is intended. Although, uh, you know, in polling in the polling business, the gap between those who intend to vote and those who actually vote is the highest in municipal elections. So it's still a little bit up in the air. Right. So it's always hard to tell whether that will actually motivate people. Are they saying what it is that they are unhappy about? Yes. You know, it, traditionally, uh, municipal politics have uh, looked at things that center on municipal issues. So property taxes, spending, traffic, uh, pace of residential development, infrastructure. But this time around, we're seeing some, uh, I'd say, leakage, if you will, from, uh, from bigger national issues at a local level. And what I mean by that is that the top issues are housing affordability, arguably not a municipal jurisdiction, homelessness, poverty, mental health issues, that's uh, 43%, uh, property, uh, sorry, policing, which is, is municipal. But those two issues at the very top of the list typically don't enter the equation when it comes to what candidates are talking about. Yeah, that is so interesting, because that sounds more like a provincial government issue. It, is, it does, and even climate change uh, is in the top five. So climate change is part of a municipal agenda, That's uh, and voters are demanding that. So when we point out in this poll that 
These are typically not areas of municipal governments, but lately they seem to be more involved. We ask people, do you think they should be more involved? And so housing affordability, 75% say, yes, you should be involved in that. Homelessness, poverty, about uh, 73%. Uh, climate change, uh, 53%. First Nations reconciliation at uh, almost 50% as well. So the municipal mandate seems to be expanding at the demand of voters. Interesting. So what was the differences then, would you say, in the discontent between Vancouver and Surrey, or was there? Well, there is. And you look at we look at three different things. Muni- mayor approval ratings, is the municipality better off or worse off? And then overall, is it time for a change? And on each of those three measures, City of Vancouver and City of Surrey really jump off the page. So, for example, uh, mayoral approval ratings, only 29% for City of Vancouver. But you look at Burnaby, Coquitlam, it's in the high 60s. Uh, Surrey is the lowest at 27%. Ooh, those are very low. Funny you mentioned Burnaby and Coquitlam because those had areas where mayors were just acclaimed because nobody ran against them. Right. And, and look at, uh, is the municipality better off or worse off compared to last time you voted? City of Vancouver says 48% they were worse off. And in the city of Surrey, it's 60%. Wow. Okay, so none of that would seem to bode well, though, Steve, for the upcoming election. Does it show a higher level of engagement? Are people paying, do you think, closer attention to municipal politics? I'm not sure that they are. If you look at, we also look at uh, overall community involvement. And we know uh, from our polling that only about 6% say that they're very involved in their community and about 30% say they're somewhat involved. And it's that small segment that really drives voting behavior. The likelihood of those people voting is three or four times those who say that they're not really involved in their community. Right. Okay. So you're saying unless you're already invested in doing things in your community, that gives us a better idea of who's going to vote. It really does. And, And remember, too, that we have a lot of fractional uh, divides when it comes to who's running. So, you know, in the, in the city of Vancouver and the, in the city of Surrey, people have a lot of choices. So you can still get elected with, you know, 30% of the popular vote if, if it comes down to that. So it's nothing certain in municipal politics, certainly far harder to predict than provincial or national election results. Now, Steve, does Leger always poll on municipal politics or is this because of this, it seems like, level of high interest this time around that you're, you're doing this? I would say we typically don't poll because it's so much harder to predict. Uh, national elections and, and provincial elections, we've, we have an outstanding track record. Uh, the last 10 elections we've called correctly. But at the municipal level, we typically uh, tread a little cautiously because of that discrepancy between intentions to vote, actual turnout, and, uh, and, and the fractitious way in, in which uh, the candidates line themselves up. Right. So then this is unique all around, it sounds like. It is, and we'll do a deeper dive in a couple of weeks to look at the uh, city of Surrey and Vancouver specifically with some larger samples. So we'll get some clarity on that uh, in the weeks ahead. Well, we'll be talking to you then. Steve, thank you so much. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Attendees at the Union of BC Municipalities Convention could be forgiven for thinking that maybe they were about to hear some big news. They were about to hear a speech from Health Minister Adrian Dix yesterday. And in the crowd, many small town mayors who have been very vocal about the health care crisis and how it has impacted their communities. Mayor after mayor who can tell you about how the emergency room in their small town has closed or, you know, there's no ambulance, there's no paramedics and how that has impacted towns. And yet, when the health minister made the speech, there was well nothing of substance for them to be able to take home to their constituents and say, hey, change is coming or this is about to happen. And it did not go over very well. 
The health minister did not provide any new specifics about how the province is going to be managing the health care crisis. And that has left a lot of mayors feeling kind of disgruntled about this, feeling very discouraged about how they are going to get some improvement in this area. And you know what? Paramedics also feeling that disappointment too. Joining us now is Troy Clifford, president of the union, representing paramedics and dispatchers. He's also an active paramedic. Troy, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me on this morning. Did you also think that we were going to perhaps hear something of substance this week from the government? No, I, I, I heard the buzz and, you know, obviously leading up the, uh, the, you know, a, a lot of discussion around, particularly around rural and remote mayors and, uh, and municipal leaders um, and, and medical community and that just the, the expectations. I, I think we've all been waiting for something and uh, this was a, a great opportunity to, with everybody in a room, particularly listening to a speech to, uh, um, I think, uh, give a little more substance to what the plan is for primary, primary care and community health. Uh, these teams that we've been talking about for a long time, that really are the solution. So, that part of it, I think, yeah, everybody was disappointed and frustrated, I think, because they were expecting more or they've been waiting for some some sort of reprieve for so long. And leading up to UBCM, this was an opportunity, everybody together. So I definitely felt that for sure. Uh, the, you know, the session that I was part of a key panel of subject matter experts with, with municipal leaders, uh, physicians, and uh, and the, the one where Minister Dick spoke to the crowd or the the, the a session um, definitely was a, a well-received uh, event and the solutions were there and are there um, and uh, it, it would really be nice to see that come to fruition right so it would be nice to perhaps get an indication that the government had heard and was listening and i, I, I there was definitely an indication of that uh, but uh, you know i think that uh, the general feeling i get from talking to people i'm up in Whistler now and i'm here for the week but is that people are tired of you know we've identified what the issues are we know what the some of the short-term solutions are, and we know what the long-term solutions are. Um, they're not easy, but uh, I think they need to see some leadership on that side of it right now, and uh, it's not coming quick enough. And I think that's right. really the sense that everybody heard. And I know the minister heard that yesterday because it was a not a you know it was a passionate crowd. There's no question. Okay, so Troy, if you're there then and you're talking to the mayors and the councillors right across BC, what are you hearing about how this is impacting their communities? Yeah, so obviously, I mean, a lot of focus is around the ambulance service, and but it's how we fit into that community health care model, um, uh, you know, and the, and they're deeply concerned about when their ambulances are not staffed or they're being drawn into other areas, and that's affecting their constituents, and that's happening every day. So they're, you know, the support we're getting from the municipal uh, governments has been a phenomenal, and uh, you know, and the listening to the solutions, and it's not that we're complaining about all the issues; we're definitely. These, these people know what's going on in their community and, you know, and they know the solutions and um, they've really banded together to lobby and hold the BC Ambulance Service accountable, um, the government accountable, and uh, they're not going to go away. I know that. And, and that's excellent to see for advocacy for patients and, uh, and health care. Okay, so given your, what you've done, we've talked to you so many times, I feel like, yeah. over the last few years and trying to address the situation is anything getting better is the hiring happening are the numbers improving yeah they are definitely we're moving towards uh and right this week we're we're in we've come to agreement with bchs to expedite hiring uh through the you know the challenge we've seen with their human resources um you know both 
bowl. Uh, sorry, I shouldn't swear. But, uh, you know, the, the, re- the bureaucracy, let's just go with that, that has resisted us to move along with posting. We were able to get uh, many of our primary care postings out yesterday uh, with an expedited hiring process. So we're optimistic that's going to get um, full-time positions filled. So there was a number of uh, additional positions that they've filled, that they've posted related to the rural and remote and indigenous framework that uh, you'll remember two years ago, the Premier announced that those will become permanent after COVID surge. Um, we're there now that there's a becoming permanent. So that's going to address some of our precarious work models in the rural and rural BC for sure. But we're still looking at the need to get things done in the metro and urban areas. And you, we heard from those mayors that, you know, what about us in Pitt Meadows? We don't even have an ambulance for 120,000 people. Um, you know, what about us in Tawas? And what about us in, in Nanaimo that we're, we're struggling with uh, and Fraser Valley? Would we? So we're hearing from them that's okay. You know, it's not just a rural and remote issue, which it absolutely is not. We we have a significant crisis for staffing and resources in in all healthcare and in the Lower Mainland, uh, and and that's one of the things that really this is not just about the ambulance service. Um, we need rural we need general general physicians to general practitioners, sorry, um, to help with the healthcare model because. People are relying on, uh, you know, the emergency room or ambulance services mm-hmm. when they really don't need to because they don't have continuity of care. That you know they can't get uh, their medications filled and and things like that that are definitely affecting um, the overall healthcare model. Right, trickling everything down. Troy, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, there's a lot uh, going on up here, but uh, we definitely need some uh, some more substance to what we're what we're facing. This is Mornings with Simi. 